On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward about a suggestion from the big city mayors of Ontario to decriminalize all drugs. Good idea? Well, she'll explain why this, why she believes and they believe this is the right move. We're going to talk to Eric Alper about the possibility that seems to be brewing somewhere about a live aid return, this time to help with COVID. And Bubba O'Neill joins me to chat about whether or not NHL and Major League Baseball officiating is doing an okay job these days or is making a mess of things because lots of people say it's the latter. We'll talk about all that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. They came out today, well, they being members of the Ontario Big City Mayors Association. That is a thing. If you have never heard that before, that is a thing. It's not a, it's not just a boastful thing. I mean, it's a, it's a group of the, the mayors of some of the largest cities in the, in the province came out and said, you know what it's time to do? It is time to decriminalize drugs, all drugs. No more, no more, no more reason for police to stop anybody if they see someone doing something. Now, if you're selling it, that's a different story. Still can't do that. Still can't be dealing drugs. That would be illegal still under this proposal. But the idea is that you cannot any longer be charged or you shouldn't. If they get their way, if this goes through, you would no longer be committing a crime if you took drugs, if you had drugs, which has been drug possession has been a thing, as you well know. It was a thing with cannabis up until very recently, and it's still a thing with a lot of other drugs. And the argument that they're making is that this should not be a criminal discussion. This should be a mental health discussion. This should be something that we are dealing with in a mental health venue rather than through the criminal justice system. It's an interesting position to take. It's an interesting position. And I'll tell you, there's a couple of reasons why I think this could be a smart idea. And there's a couple of reasons why I think this could be an absolutely terrible idea. I mean, the smart idea I think is kind of obvious is that if you've got someone who has a legitimate dependence on some sort of drug, you say, well, what's the help? What's the benefit to society? Are we really doing anything by charging them? If you've got an addiction and you go to court and they convict you, even if you get a fine or something, is that going to stop you from using that drug in the future? especially some of the stuff that people are addicted to these days, you would say, is that really going to stop you from doing anything in the future? Is that going to put an end to that? Is it going to get that behavior out of our community? And I think most people would say, oh, probably not. Probably not. That's probably not going to be the answer or the thing that is going to propel someone to stop taking the drug because they suddenly have a criminal record. So on that hand, you say, all right, so if it's not then helping anybody with criminal charges, well, what do we do with it? I want to bring in Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, as I say, not just the mayor of Burlington, but also the co-chair of the Ontario Big City Mayor's Mental Health Working Committee. Um, Ms. Mayor, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for your interest. Well, I think this is going to be something that raises a lot of people's eyebrows because anytime you start talking about decriminalizing something that has been criminalized for as long as it has been and that a lot of people have 
real issues with. I don't mean addiction. I mean looking at it and saying this is not good. What what would be the? For, I've just been explaining what might be part of the reason, but I want to hear from you. What would be the reason why you would decriminalize or push to decriminalize? Well, I think it's really important to make a distinction between decriminalizing something and making it legal. They are not the same. So we're not, we're not legalizing a whole group of drugs. What we're doing is saying it shouldn't be a criminal offense uh, if you are addicted and using uh, certain opioids and other substances. We want to treat it as a mental health issue, which it is. Uh, certainly stop it. But actually, the one of the best reasons and what was very compelling to me is that this is a recommendation, a longstanding recommendation from chiefs of police and mental health uh, and health workers in the field. They are saying that this, uh, by criminalizing uh, possession, by criminalizing uh, what we do right now, it it actually takes addictions to the justice system and the courts, which is not where they belong. And, and it, it, you know, a criminal record will follow people. So we need to deal with it uh, in a different way. That is what we were doing, we are proposing to do. But it's really the advice uh, longstanding from those tables that I find really compelling. And again, decriminalizing doesn't equal legalization. It's really important to make that distinction. No opioid stores opening up yet is what you're saying. There will not be any opioid stores. <laughs> no. Well, uh, so so we'll still, there will still be penalties. There will still be, but they won't be at the level of criminal. So think of the difference, if I can make a comparison, between a parking ticket and a felony charge that, sure. that has jail time. That, that's really uh, what we are talking about. And, and, and the ability to um, appropriately deal with these issues provides some disincentives, but more importantly, the most important thing is to provide the resources and supports people need to get out of the cycle of addiction, which is why they're using in the first place. And Ms. Mayor, the, the one thing that, that you look at and you say, okay, if we're going to make this a mental health issue rather than a criminal issue, we need then to have the facilities or the ability to help people with those mental health issues and the infrastructure to be able to do that. Do we have that? We certainly don't have enough. That that is there's there's no question about that, and and that was true before COVID. It is absolutely true now post COVID because we've seen a huge in, increase in mental health addictions. Uh, you know every uh, that the ongoing impact of being isolated, uh, people losing their jobs, people not being able to go to work has had a devastating impact, and and even the delayed uh, ability to get. Uh, you know, surgeries and healthcare that's non-COVID done for folks has created problems. So people that are in chronic pain that have had their surgeries and procedures delayed because their hospitals are full of COVID patients, and of course we will take care of them. Uh, but that has led to people uh, obviously having to, uh, in some cases, use pain medication, and that's addictive. Uh, you know, so many people, if you, if you look at the stories of how people became addicted to opioids, it was through uh, getting them prescribed for a legitimate reason and medical condition, usually treating pain, and and these are these are really challenging substances, obviously, and but it's exacerbated by the fact that people are also depressed and they are struggling with with all of the things that we've all been struggling with for the last eighteen months. 
So, so we know we need to have additional supports for mental health services. That is part of our white paper that the Ontario Big City Mayors um, uh, approved uh, unanimously, thanks, uh, thanks to all of them. And this is the voice, I think it's really important to say, this is the voice of 29 mayors across Ontario representing 75% of the population. And, you know, we expected some, potentially some debate about some of the recommendations. There was uh, unanimous support. We're, we're mm. all seeing the need for the recommendations that came forward. We, we uh, talked, we had great uh, stakeholders, representatives from mental health organizations around our table helping us put this together. Uh, great input, and so I think that's partly why. They recognize that this is, what is, this is what the science and the evidence about how to deal with these issues is telling us, and it actually wasn't controversial. It was fully supported, and I'm really gr- grateful for that. Let me ask you about the science and the evidence, because are there places in the world uh, that have tried this, that have done this, and that have seen successes, or is this an experiment if it was to happen? Well, I think there are certainly places that have, have I, you know, I think this is in the same sort of category as the safe, uh, you know, safe needle exchanges, safe places to inject, uh, you know, one of the one of the, the, the proven ways to get people off um, addiction is that you don't go cold turkey. So having people actually get, you know, get, get, get a way to get their dose slowly reduced, it's very dangerous actually to go cold turkey when you're trying to come off addiction. So, so we're, you know, we, we've, we provide that here in Canada in, in a number of places. So this is, in my mind, in that same, uh, same continuum. And, and really, again, I can't stress enough that, that not criminalizing something or decriminalizing something is not saying it's legal. It is simply placing it in a different category uh, of offense, which allows us to not give people a criminal record for what is ultimately a mental health and a physical health issue, and then getting them the supports they need. I know you've specified several times, and I, and I understand why you have, that it's not legalizing, it's decriminalizing. I, I do wonder, though, if there is a, um, a perception that decriminalizing something is seen as the government giving tacit approval to this in the sense that we're not going to deem it as an illegal kind of thing, therefore it's okay to do this. And that's why doing this show is really important. <laughs> so thank you. You know, keep keep spreading the word because, you know, I, I, there may be a misperception, but again, I, I guess the closest analogy I can draw is that, uh, you know, that of a speeding ticket or a not wearing your seatbelt. You don't get a criminal charge and a criminal record for that. You do get a fine, though, and if you do it enough, you could lose your license. Uh, so we don't, it, it's not legal. We just don't give you a criminal record for it. So I think it's really important when we have this conversation with the community to keep sending that message that this is, these are still controlled substances. There will be penalties for uh, violating the legislation around that, but you will not get a criminal record. And, and that, uh, that, again, has been suggested by chiefs of police, medical, uh, and, and uh, health professionals, and it's the right thing to do. And, we have only 30 seconds, so I'm sorry to cut it so short, but what now? You, you can't bring this into law. This is going to require higher levels of government to do something. What, what happens from here? 
We have sent our paper to the provincial government and federal government and a number of other tables. We will continue our advocacy and and we will be monitoring action. So uh, so it's not kind of one and done and we walk away and and hope you know hope and cross our fingers. We will be monitoring and we will keep pushing for this. We are not going to stop until this happens. And we have lots of other voices with us who also won't stop and who've been speaking for a lot longer than we have uh, until this gets done. So we hope that by adding our voice that this will finally happen. That is Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead-Ward. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for talking about this. Thanks for your interest, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So you're pretty familiar, I'm sure, with Live Aid, 1985. Live Aid was the super concert that was to help starving people in Ethiopia during the famine. And then since then, we've had Live Aid, Live Eight. Tough to confuse the two. Uh, Live Aid, then Live Eight, then Farm Aid, then Woodstock 2, um, then a bunch of disastrous failures of their super concerts that were supposed to raise money for something or other. And then, of course, SARS Fest in Toronto which helped the city get over the SARS situation back in 2003. Well, now we're hearing rumblings that Live Aid could be coming back. And what would those rumblings be? Well, according to the Daily Mail over in UK, the gov.uk website shows that Live Aid has been trademarked. I, I would have thought it would have been trademarked long before now, but Live Aid has been trademarked within the past few months, along with a bunch of subsections to cover all this off, which is leading to all kinds of speculation that we are preparing, or someone is preparing, Bob Geldof, I guess, to bring back a new Live Aid. It will be the third version of Live Aid. I want to bring in Eric Alper. He is a publicist, music publicist, music writer, a Twitter star. If you ever follow CNN, that's, you know, that is true of him as well. He joins us now. Eric, how are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. And actually, a little bit of trivia. I've done PR for both Bob Geldof and Midgier in separate decades. So you can imagine the 15-year-old kid in me were was just a little bit over the moon working with both of them. No kidding. And did you make a horrible, I don't like Monday's comment quip to Bob Geldof when you talk to him? No, because Bob Geldof is 6'4", and I'm five feet. And so (laughs) I learned really early on that sometimes jokes don't really, aren't as funny as you think they are, especially when Bob Geldof has the ability to cut you down to size even more. (laughs) Yeah, and 6'4", and that's before his uh, wake up in the morning and don't brush your hair hair that takes him up to about 6'9". Which, which, you know, Bob would probably say this as well. He doesn't normally brush his hair. So, uh, no, um, no. Yeah, he's good. He's good to go whenever he wants to. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen on this list of things that are being trademarked. I have not seen brushes or combs, which may <laughs> fit in exactly. Uh, are we, are we, are we excited about the possibility of another live aid? Yes especially because of what it could potentially stand for. And, you know, this is obviously pure speculation, but it's fun to speculate about this kind of Of stuff. Because if Live Aid was able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and awareness for the famine in, in Ethiopia and also in Africa, the ability to put the world spotlight on the COVID fight, especially in in countries and in continents where it's devastating even more than here in North America. Um, the ability to tell people to get vaccinated. Um, sometimes 
sometimes you leave it up to rock stars to do. And I know that that sounds a little bit weird, but in the 1950s, Elvis Presley got his vaccine against polio. And the next day and, and 48 hours after that, um, people under the age of 25 went in droves to get it done, almost in terms of almost 60% rising in terms of vaccines that were handed out for polio back then. So, you know, rock stars are a little bit different when it comes to, I think, the snarkiness of Hollywood stars or actors and actresses, as we've seen in the past. For some reason, you know, musicians, well, for a lot of reasons, um, people just continue to put their faith in, in rock stars and music and musicians um, doing well and doing good for the good of the world. And uh, I, I think a lot of people would listen to Bob Geldof and, and whoever he wants to come on uh, if they decide to do a live aid too. I'm, I'm certainly not against the idea of a mega concert. I kind of love the idea of a mega concert. I went to the SARS Fest or SARS Stock or whatever we called it back in 2003 but but does bringing back the name Live Aid do anything to help, or is that something that should stand of its own time in its own place? No, I, I think if there's one thing that Bob Geldof and, and perhaps Midgier knows, it's the power of a really good brand. You know, after the Boomtown Rats and then Geldof went to do Live Aid, um, after his musical career kind of stalled a little bit because it's really hard to set forth an, another rock star life after you've done the biggest concert the world has ever seen. And one of the things that Geldof did was start a television production company that literally invented Survivor and licensed it out for the rest of the world. So he's very well aware that not only the very nature that you and I are talking about this as a potential is worth maybe a couple of people out there getting their mm. vaccine done. Um, why start from scratch? Why start from zero? You've already built great relationships around the world when it comes to branding with television departments and, and, uh, and concert, uh, concert venues. And attaching Bob Geldof's name with Live Aid is pretty synonymous of like doing really good work. So I, I can understand him wanting to continue that name. Let me ask you something though, quickly about that. What what would be the take a wild guess? I know there's no scientific poll here. What would be the age? Do you think of someone willing to either stand out for 15, 16, 17 hours in the blazing sun or the pouring rain to watch a concert these days? Ninety five years old. Yeah, you know, ninety five. See, I was going to say okay, because anyone under say thirty five wasn't even alive for Live Aid. And I'm not sure yeah. that name. I mean, I know it has value. I just don't know if it's the value for the people who would be going to this but then again you've no, also got a tv doesn't. audience you're you're absolutely right and, and here's the other thing you know when the Foo fighters announced that they were going to go and play madison square gardens back at the first major show in that venue and and probably the biggest band show that wasn't a festival in north america there were still picketers and a lot of social media posts uh with people saying that they were part of the vaccine apartheid that you know you're stopping people from living their lives and a lot of people were kind of going against dave Grohl being the nicest man in rock and and kind of proclaiming that um that he was forcing people in order to get their shots to see a concert when really they had nothing to do with it it was all new york and new york state's rules and regulations um but 
the ability to do a concert with potentially 80,000 people there might be one of the greatest things that comes out of all of this is you're definitely going to have to show proof that you've been double vaccinated because it would just be hypocritical if you weren't. And it would show that the world can get to a place of any sense of normalcy as long as everybody around you is as safe as they can be. It's the only way to get things work. I understand that people may have a different view, however wrong I think it is about getting that vaccine. But the point of the matter is, is that there will never be another full size event whether it's movies or or film or television, unless everybody on that one site is safe. And let me jump you know, in, Eric. I got to take a very quick break, yeah, but we're going to come ahead. back with more with Eric Alper right after this. And Eric, I want to ask you if a, if a mega concert like Live Aid could even work. I would love it to believe it could, but could a Live Aid concert even work now? And here's the reason I asked the question because it sounds like, well, duh, of course it could work. It's a great music fest. Back then and before. We all listen to the radio. So we all had some sense of communal listening experience. We all kind of liked the same bands within reason. There was some things we had in common when it came to our music. So you could put up a bunch of artists and have a pretty good possibility that most of them were going to tickle our ears because we're familiar with them and we like them. Now we're so fractured with what we listen to with streaming and digital and everything else. Could you do that? Could you put enough people up there who appeal to everybody that it works? I think you really can't. Um, you know, for all that we love to look at the numbers of Ed Sheeran or Drake or The Weeknd, um, when you really get down to it, uh, selling a million records isn't really selling a million records in the old days where there was only much music in Canada. There was only MTV in the States. And if you watched that, if you were an artist on much music, on Monday, you had no audience. And on Tuesday, if they played you for the first time, you couldn't walk down the street anymore without being mobbed. <laughs> I think what could be interesting is using all these different platforms for the same reason with different artists. You can use certain artists on Twitch. You can use those people that are really big on TikTok. You can have the traditional artists that are from, you know, people like Queen or Journey or Kansas or Steve Miller play actually in the stadium for people who love to, you know, spend eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours out there. But the sheer amount of different platforms certainly brings up a lot more opportunity to have many concerts going on at the same time. And that kind of leads into this trademark request for Band-Aid because it actually covers streaming rights and merchandise, which means that it won't just be a televised concert. There's a lot more opportunity to do things on different platforms than ever before. Yeah, and maybe that means, maybe people would still sit down in front of their TVs for 8 or 12 or 15 hours. How long did Live Aid go on? It was it started British time, and then it was like 18 hours, I think, it was the full length of the yeah. concert. I, now, I think you say, I'll watch the band that I want to see on YouTube or on Twitter or Twitch or whatever else, and I'm going to tune out for that. It would be much harder, I think, to keep people tied in. Yes, yeah, and and, and that is, I think, mostly because for the most part, the one criticism that I think Geldof would want to change is that 
there wasn't a real diversity when it comes to what was going on in Live Aid in Philadelphia and in England in terms of musical styles. Now you don't actually have that problem. You can have different artists and different styles of music on different platforms. Um, but Bob's, Bob's, um, Bob's reasoning for who got on Live Aid was literally just going down the pop chart. And whoever was the biggest, that's who he asked. And so it didn't matter if you were R&B or rap or, or, rap or, or hip-hop or soul. He just wanted you if you had an audience. I think now it might be a little bit more difficult as much as we all love that, you know, streaming services and, and everything else kind of blends these styles together. I think if you're a fan of, say, Olivia Rodrigo, you might not want to sit through 45 minutes of sticks, <laughs> for instance, and no slight to them. I think that's just, the world is a little bit more segregated than we all, than we like to give ourselves credit for. Well, we got to go, but I, I, again, I went to SARS stock. You may have been there as well back in 2003. And what was one of the funniest moments, probably not for him was you've had uh, rush and ACDC and the Rolling Stones and you know all these heavy, and then all of a sudden here comes Justin Timberlake. And I people knew were you pelt- were going to say that. I knew it. And he yeah. just, he didn't fit with the kind of like the, the vibe and people were pelting him with water bottles filled with their urine. And it was like, all right, well, that's a new look. Um, but, but again, if you, it would be really hard, I think, to be able to satisfy all the tastes when we now have the ability to turn the channel so quickly or find other ways to, to watch. Anyway, we got to run. Unfortunately, that is Eric Alper. Uh, let's hope, let, let's hope they could figure out somehow. And I would love to see what the reaction would be if the Boomtown Rats reappeared, because I don't think anyone under 35 has heard the Boomtown Rats ever and see if they actually played along to them, but who knows. Uh, Eric, always appreciate you taking time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of things going on to talk about in the world of sports, but two in particular that I want to bring in, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH to chat with me about tonight. Bubba, how are you tonight? All good there, sir. Excellent. So there's two things I want to talk about. Let's start with this first one because it's uh, it's our national sport, or at least it relates to it. And I don't have a dog in the fight in the NHL playoffs at this point. I don't have a rooting interest. I don't. But so I don't have the kind of emotional um, rage about the officiating that I might if there was other teams in it or something that I really cared about. But it is impossible. Bubba, not to be hearing players, coaches, analysts who usually don't talk about officials, fans, everyone discussing the officiating in the NHL playoffs. Has it, in your mind, really been that bad, or is there something going on? No, it's generally used as an excuse by a team that loses a game. Um, I mean, it's just the way it goes. And, you know, I think we all recognize, and I would think the players especially the veteran players, understand that the officiating in the regular season and the officiating in the playoffs uh, is somewhat altered. Um, I think the referees don't want to be the reason why um, power plays are given or you know advantages are given in certain situations, as you would in soccer. Um, but I, I generally find that the officiating, at least in, from what I see, and I listen to a lot and probably more than the average person in a lot of these press conferences on a daily basis, and it's generally discussed by the losing team more so than the winning team. Well, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And it's, it's just that it seemed to be finding more of a t- more this year from like, cause coaches get fined when they talk about it. So often they remain measured when they, they don't want to. 
there's been a lot of coaches and a lot of players that have said stuff this year. Let me ask you this though, because you, you bring up a very valid point and a lot of people know this. There is a different or seems to be, I don't even think seems to, there is, there is a different standard of officiating in the playoffs and in the regular season. Why? You know, and, and that's a question that you know, that comes up every single year at this time of year, uh, especially in the NHL postseason, because it doesn't really change for football. It doesn't change for any sport, really. Um, I just think that, I think for whatever reason, the refs, as I said earlier, they don't want to be your reason why a game is decided. They, they're, give, they're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the players. And I think that players inherently within the first five minutes of a game will generally understand or come to terms with the way an individual official is going to referee is going to call a game. And I think that's up to the players to understand that. I'll compare it somewhat to a baseball game, uh, a baseball game, and this could be any game where there's a different home plate umpire. There is no true definition from umpire to umpire what the strike zone is. There's, it's a, there's a definition in the book, but each umpire calls it somewhat differently. And I think, especially as veteran players, you're not going to see that seriously of Montreal if you're Cole Caulfield or, or, or Nick Suzuki. You're figuring this stuff out. But as veteran players, say, you know, a Carey Price in that or, or Eric Stahl out there for the Canadians, you're going to understand that from the official. As each player has a reputation, so carries a reputation for each official. And you're right. There's no question. You're right. The issue though, the, the question becomes when, when you say the referees don't want to decide the game by calling a penalty or whatever else, are they not affecting the game by not calling a penalty? I, I heard a stat the other day that said in his last eight playoff games, Connor McDavid has not drawn a single penalty, which is way off what it would be in the regular season where because of his speed and everything else, there's a lot of penalties called that he draws. And so by not calling those penalties, what you're doing is then rendering a guy who in the regular season has been very effective at part of his game, much less effective. And you're, you're really, you're saying the third and fourth line grinders become much more important than the skill players in the playoffs. Well, I don't know if important's the word, but I think they definitely do play a, a more prominent role in the postseason. Um, you, you in the island, New Island, the New York Islanders. That fourth line is called the identity line because they're known to set the tone in particular cases, uh, depending on the situation. Is and, and, and Barry Trotz will put them on the ice depending on what he needs to, you know, to maybe change the mood of the game or or to you know what to start hitting some people and add a physical element to the game. Um, you know what, Scott? I, I mean, I find these a lot of these penalties slow down the game. I think we're all looking for pace of play. I'm okay with this. Um, I think most old school guys would probably appreciate it too, in the sense that we don't have the officiating, like a, a stoppage in play, a Nicky knack penalty. Um, let's, you know, we're constantly hearing, "Hey, toughen up." Um, I'm okay with this, um, and I prefer the game in the postseason. I know nothing's going to be perfect, right? There's no perfect call. There's no perfectly officiated game for the most part. But I, I almost prefer this playoff-style hockey more so than what I see in the regular season. And that and, and I got no beef with that either. And I, you know, I love a, a tough, hard-hitting game. I, I just think the NHL has to figure out what the game, what the game is they want. Because I, I think, and you pointed it out, you have two different styles, a different style in the playoffs. And no other sport has this. Either 
pick the way you want the playoffs to be and have that as your call and your way you do things in the regular season. So it's consistent all the way through and you can then build teams that work one way or the other or don't or go to the stuff that they do in the regular season and call it consistently. I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to once the playoffs start to completely change and flick a switch and say, okay, new rules. Away you go. That doesn't make well, sense. I don't to think me. it's that. I don't think it's that obvious. I mean, I, I think yes, you're right. That there's, I mean, I agree. Yes, it's differently called, but I think the National Hockey League would tell you that, you know, there's really. I mean, obviously, they're going to say there's no difference whatsoever. I mean, which you know would be bunk. But I do believe that you know they prefer it this way themselves. I think. I think if you did a poll with the players too. I think they might agree to that too. I think at the end of the day, Scott, consistency from each individual referee is probably what you're looking for. And that's why I say I think players that will identify within the players and the head coaches will determine within the next five, the first five minutes of a hockey game, how an individual official will call a game. I'd love to go back to the one referee system then, so that you don't have to guess between the two guys, but okay. That's a good point, good point. Uh, let me switch to the other one that I wanted to ask you about, because this I found fascinating over the last few days. So in the last number of weeks, Major League Baseball has acknowledged finally the problem they have, that even though pitchers by rule are not permitted to use foreign substances, pine tar or sticky tack or Vaseline or anything, you can't, you, everyone knows that pitchers are not supposed to use foreign substances on the ball. You're not supposed to doctor the ball. They've learned over the past number of years that a lot of pitchers, maybe most pitchers, I don't know, are, which explains spin rotation. If you can stick your fingers to the ball better and all kinds. So baseball has said enough. We're, we're, we're having way too many strikeouts. The guys are throwing too hard. There's blah, blah, blah. We are now going to put in a rule that umpires can check pitchers during the game. I think it's up to five times in a game that they can check the pitcher in the middle of a game, potentially in the middle of an at bat. Well, this has now started. And pitchers, as you've probably seen the video, some of you listening have seen it, are losing their mind because it's essentially in front of everybody in the stadium accusing them of cheating. And for some of the pitchers, they're getting asked two or three times to prove that they don't have some sort of substance on them. Do the pitchers have a gripe here? Absolutely. I, I think this is, again, this is Major League Baseball, and they have so many incidents of them just being just... Uh, I don't know what they're thinking here, you know, and I guess I have to blame mo the modernization of observing pitchers. A spin rate has become a big thing now here, and now that, you know, the spin rate is being, you know, um, charted by, you know, the stats geeks out there. You know, they're determining that each, you know, individual pitcher has a, a different spin rate, and some of them are out of whack. And it's you know, and it, and in some ways, it's embarrassing Major League Baseball because, as you said, strikeups, strikeouts are up, but also home runs are also uh, uh, you know up as well too. So I think it almost balances itself out. Look at Robbie Ray, who's pitching tonight for the Blue Jays. I mean, the guy you know leads a team in strikeouts, could be the one of the fastest to 100 strikeouts in 14 starts for the Blue Jays in franchise history, but he also gives up a lot of home runs. That's baseball nowadays. The game changes. But back to what you're saying there, I think what ha it, 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 it's kind of akin to you and I or each individual of our listeners going up to the border and, not, and, and having a conversation with the customs guy, and every single time you get sent over to the building to get your car checked. Like it, it, you know, we saw an example last night where Matt Scherzer, one of the better pitchers in Major League Baseball, a surefire Hall of Famer when it's all said and done, through four innings, 
was checked twice by the umpire. And then, again, if, if our listeners don't know this, the opposing manager has the right to request another check. So three times he has to drop his hat, give his glove up, and you're right. It's right in front of everyone, which to me just as he's and it's well, what he's being accused. The, the he's being accused. The grandstanding, right? Because they're embarrassed and they think it's ridiculous. Uh, so I just, I mean, hey, this has been going on for a hundred. Major League Baseball has been going on for what 120 years. Pitchers have been using files. Pitchers have been using Vaseline, um, pine tar. I mean, every sport has its element of cheating. And, and I don't know what Major League Baseball is trying to prove here because I, I think, again, and it all will go back to pace of play. How many times are we going to have these stoppages that lengthen the in-between in innings? Yeah. I, I Look, there, I think, and again, you know, I don't understand the thought process behind some of this stuff. I think there's an easy way to do this. I know it may run afoul of the Players Association, but you put you tell them, look, this is a serious offense in our eyes. And if you are caught with this stuff, you're not going to get a five-day suspension because, you know, for some guys, that's not a big deal or whatever it is. You're going to get a 30-game suspension if you're caught with this stuff, which I think as a deterrent, suddenly now you're really thinking about whether it's worthwhile. And on the flip side, if you want to be the manager of the other team that calls the guy out and challenges him, I think it should be like the NHL rules where you're either calling for a, a goalie interference measurement or a, whatever it is now, a penalty or, or for a stick measurement. If you challenge the pitcher and you're wrong, there should be a penalty against you or against your team. But how do you penalize in baseball? Well, uh, uh, you could do a number of ways. I mean, the, the obvious one is you say, if you're the manager and you challenge the other guy and he's clean, you're kicked out of the game. I don't particularly love that one because I think the manager in baseball is more or less a mascot in the dugout more often than not. I mean, there's not that much. How do you penalize that? How do you penalize that manager for making that decision to challenge? So, so, well, I'll tell you one way you could do it that may or may not have any impact on the game in that particular day, but it could, you say, look, we are reducing now at this point in the game, you have lost one of your roster spots for the game. You cannot, you, you can only go to, if they got a 25 man roster, you can only go to 24 today. I don't know if that's a way that would do it. But or do you, you would that, you do that in mid game. I, I just don't know if that works, Scott. I, well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, you would... maybe the, the, the next inning, someone gets a runner on base. I, I, I mean, something. Something like I'm open to the ideas, but there should be a penalty for doing it because it shouldn't be a freebie. You should, there should be a cost, a risk, a benefit situation here where if you catch a guy, if you spot that he's got his arm glistening with some sort of Vaseline, go ahead, get them to check him. But if you go out there just to throw him off his game, which looks like it's gamesmanship now, but why you should be penalized. Have, why does anything have to be done? This, as I said, this has been going on in Major League Baseball for de- forever. For as long as a man has been throwing base a, a baseball competitively, this has been going on. I, yep. We have in any sport, people will try to cheat. That's just the way it is. Uh, people will try to steal signs in baseball. People will try to steal offensive signs in football. That's the way it is. Leave it into the hands of the umpire. I think they've done a good job over the years. We've had Hall of Fame pitchers over the years, Gaylord Perry, that have all been busted for doing such a thing, and they've been punished for doing for, for you know trying to gain an advantage. I just don't understand why all of a sudden it's a big deal. 
I, I, I mean, to say that pitchers are doing it more than they ever have, well, I, I mean, I'm not close enough. I'm not a pitcher. I can't say that. But I haven't really noticed too much of a difference here. But if they are, and here's the thing, everybody in the game seems to suggest that's the case, that this is happening more often. So to me, that's baseball's fault for letting it, because you're right. I mean, back in, remember the, everyone I'm sure who watches baseball will remember back when I think it was Joe Necro uh, got a challenge because he was, they found the ball was scuffed and they went and he, remember he had to empty his back pocket and a file fell out onto the pitcher's mound. Well, it, it is illegal. So he got tossed out of that game because he got caught and he got busted for that. So I, I, it's baseball's problem that they have ignored this and let it get to the point now where apparently everybody thinks that almost all the pitchers are doing it. So I, I, I don't have a problem with cracking down on it. I just think there's got to be a way to do it no, the way to do it, Scott, at least to me, what, okay, here, here's, I'll, I'll go to the core of the issue here. Why do pitchers do this? To get a to. grip on the ball. Because every ball that is used in Major League Baseball is a brand new ball right out of the box. Once no, so, no, no, every, no, it's not. Every ball you use is, is rubbed down with mud to take some of the shine and the, uh, the sheen off at first. So it's not it, like the it, ones. You, it is, it is, but it is still, I have, I have, it's still new. It is, it is a slick, slick ball. So if you're trying to wait, athletes in all sports are bigger, faster, and stronger. So you've got more guys throwing heat now than they ever have. So when a pitcher cannot hold on to a ball firmly, with a, you know, and, and remember, it's, you're just not throwing a fastball. You're throwing curved sliders, off-speed pitches, et cetera, et cetera. So when the pitchers cannot get a firm grip on the ball, it forces them to grab something, some type of substance, and rosin is generally the one that's, uh, that's legal to use, to kind of grip, have a grip on the baseball. And I, I don't know, maybe you've got to scuff up the baseball a little bit more to, 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 for these guys to actually have an ability to hold the ball safely or guys are going to get pinged. Something. I mean, look, I, I get why some of them are doing it. I also get that, you know, spin rate allows you to move the pitches more and there is enormous money in being a top pitcher. And if you can get guys to strike out and you can move the ball and whatever else, there's also financial implications for doing it. It's not just for the safety of the batters. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. I, it, it just seems like this is a rule. I mean, not, not doctoring the ball is a rule of baseball. It shouldn't be that complicated. It shouldn't, it should not be that complicated. And if you're going to put in all kinds of new rules that allow people to challenge left to right and center, there should at least be some sort of penalty. If you're going to try and play with the pitcher's head and challenge him and make him look like an idiot on the mound, that if you're wrong, something happens to you or your team. I just like, think as I, I say, like, like in hockey. Yeah, I just think there's there's a there's a certain humble humbling of the individual in these situations, and uh, I, I just don't know if this is the way to go about it. Uh, we're ready to. This is the third day of this rule being <laughs> implemented, and people are already and, losing their minds. And, and people are already losing their mind. We saw Sergio Romo, the, you know, the veteran re- relief pitcher, take for off the, his pants. He, he dropped his drawers, right? Like he, he dropped his <laughs> pants. He was so disgusted. And what happened? And like I said, Max Scherzer. Like I mean, you're talking about Hall of Fame. You're talking about multiple All Star starter. You know, three check three times within four innings. Like, come on. Like, you know, if you, that's, I think that's, that's embarrassing. 
So here's what well, we got to run, but here's two things. First of all, for those who didn't see Romo, he didn't drop his pants as like to moon the umpire. He <laughs> dropped his hat. He took off his glove and threw on the ground and then undid his belt as if to show there's nothing in my belt and sort of lowered his pants, but it wasn't a, a thing. All right. One quick suggestion then, and you've just sort of, if the idea is that we're going to keep checking you, why not when the pitcher walks out to the mound for the start of the inning, he gets checked right then. As he walks by the umpire, the umpire takes a quick look in his glove and his hat. Because if you were going to load something up, you would do it in the dugout. And then there's no stopping a guy mid-inning to look for something. You're done. You're clear. Go pitch. Maybe that's the way to do it in between a commercial break. I just, I as a viewer, don't want to be disturbed by this. And like I said, for 120 years, umpires have been monitoring this as they, as they see fit. They're the ones behind home plate. They the, they're the ones that see the ball moving all over the place. Shouldn't they be the ones to figure out? I mean, these are experienced. And, and yeah. Major League Baseball is a sport that has experienced umpires. They're going to know if a ball has been, you know, has been, has been altered. I, I, I don't know. I just think yeah, this is no, a, no. a panic move by Major League Baseball. Of course it is. Of course it is. But that's why I say baseball has let this get to the point by not doing anything that now it's a conundrum. Now it's a giant mess. And now they've made it stupider by implementing rules that try to fix the mess, but only make the mess more messy. Anyway, that is Bubba O'Neill. You can see him tonight at 11 on CHCH TV, as you can every single night now that he is back and healthy again, and we are glad for that. Bubba, thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Bubba. It was a pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.